From Cisco Systems to SAP to GE Transportation, Wesley Mukai has been building, selling, and integrating new products and systems for huge companies and customers for a long time. He recently left GE Transportation after more than three years with the company to take some well-earned time off, and he was kind enough to spend some time with us at IT Visionaries. In this episode, Wesley discusses how he came up in the world of technology, what it means to find the right product at the right price at the right time, and all the challenges he overcame and innovations he helped lead as CTO of GE Transportation. Enjoy this episode. This podcast is sponsored by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. Salesforce just introduced the Lightning Platform Mobile, the low-code mobile app development platform that empowers anyone to easily build, publish, and manage AI-powered mobile apps for employees and for customers. Find out more at salesforce.com slash build mobile apps. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have in studio, Wesley, how's it going? Great. How are you doing this morning? You know, it's a great day, and uh, we are excited to talk to you for a bunch of reasons. We're going to get into what you were working on as the CTO of GE Transportation, and you're taking a little break right now. So yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah. Taking it's a little ex- sabbatical, six months off for the family, and enjoying the weather. Timing's good. <laughs> yeah, and great timing to do a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll recount a bunch of stuff from your career and all of that. But first, you own a couple patents here. Tell me tell me about that. So well, the, the first one, which is uh, fairly interesting. So I used to work at a company called InfoGear, which was a startup late 90s that made something called the iPhone. And it was a dial up. Think of a, you know, the, a corporate phone, desktop phone, but it had a, a small touch screen, black and white dial up modem. Uh, we did our own browser. We did the uh, the phone. We did everything, and it was called the iPhone. We eventually we sold we sold you know sold it in the the uh, I don't think they have good guys anymore in the Bay Area. It's something called Good Guys, but it used to be like Circuit City and these retail stores. Yeah, Radio Shack. Yeah, Vegas, yeah. The- and we would sell these, and I'd be out hawking these things. And I was the product manager for that. We eventually sold the company to Cisco Systems, and Cisco Systems then became got involved in consumer products, et cetera. This is, you know, early 2000s. And, uh, you know, first dot-com boom, bust. They basically, we we shut our business unit. But at that time, a couple of interesting things. So my patent is basically, we had a, a, a server-backed software that could push content to a web device, any any sort of thin client device. And we had something we were creating called the Cisco WebPad at that time. And the patent, first patents around the industrial design for this predecessor for the iPad in many ways it had a very unique uh, carry handle, pop-up screen, you know, keyboard hidden. And it was this great industrial design, which we never launched as a product. But it, the, the final part of the story is basically, you know, when uh, Apple wanted to come out with the iPhone, they had to negotiate with Cisco Systems because Cisco Systems owned that iPhone name from our startup. And we had to prove that we actually sold units so that there was some value to this name. And, uh, you know, you still search on the web, you know, iPhone info gear, you'll find the the product that we used to have. Yeah, that's crazy. And I was I was searching it before we started talking. Internethistorypodcast.com does the forgotten story of the original iPhone released in 1998. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's great about it, it's, you know, it's not, 
it's not too far from the original concept of you know the the iPhone name and the what the product types where you had this inter, you know integrated phone and screen what you know web web experience managing content you know it was all there i think some of the technology and the the cost we could never get the cost under 299 yeah, <laughs> even yeah. with subsidies but uh but it was an interesting time you know you can still you can still buy them online on ebay oh yeah 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 it's like <laughs> 65 bucks on used on ebay that's so funny yeah. um <clears throat> yeah the and doing some some research about it is it's funny like yeah, like the today in Apple history, and it's like iPhone might have to seek a new name and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> I mean, and it, so you're sitting there justifying how many units you're like, we sold this many units, like this was the thing. Yeah, you know, it, it was painful. It wasn't like we could sell them. You know, back then it was it was old school. You know, we're at, we're at a kiosk in a in a meet meet and greet at the front of the store. Oh, that's trying, funny. You know, like you would see at Costco today or something, yeah. trying to hawk these phones and getting them to sign up for a subscription. And understand what this device was. So you weren't. Oh, that's. Uh, I. I was thinking that you were on the shelves. So you weren't on the shelves of the well, store. We, no, no, we were on the shelves. But you know, just as part of uh, the marketing, yeah, product mar- management, you're out there trying to explain, right? You really had to explain these concepts of, you know, what what's the value of a web and phone integration? Hey, I see a link on a phone. Hey, I just click on the link and it goes and dials out automatically. That's so right? cool. And um, yeah, so, you know, it, it's uh, like I said, but I, I think for a lot of these products that there was a big time where thin client devices was was really big. There was something called the eye opener. There was a, a lot of these cheap devices trying to get to around three ninety nine, you know, and uh, basically it was held back by, you know, the, the CPU power wasn't there yet. Yeah. Remember, you the color screen, you really couldn't buy a color screen at that size to get at the right price point. So it took a little, about five years later, four years later, where the the economics kind of clicked in place, and I think people then could could really, you know, realize some of the vision of these early products. Isn't it interesting to think? So that comes out, and and there's been a bunch of, uh, and I forget what it's called. What is that? Uh, the famous Apple device that they never actually made. What was that called? It's like the one in the mid '90s. <laughs> that is, oh, oh my goodness, I forget off the top of my head. Yeah, it was before the phone, right? There was yeah, they but they so they ran this ad for it at this at this trade show event, and uh, yeah, no, something they they never ended up making, but it was like what what gave everyone the inspiration to create, you know, what ended up becoming all of these mobile devices. Yeah, and all this stuff was like this is this dude sitting uh, in the commercial, and he's like, you know, working off this little pad, but basically ended up now, yeah. Well, and it's a little bit of a side, but you know, one of the things when I think back at that time, and it's interesting you brought it up is you sort of see that same dilemma with virtual reality and the goggles and Oculus and all these things, right? Something's there. You kind of get the concepts. Price point's a little struggling, right? Um, is the user experience perfect? Does it fit well? And it's it's going to get there, but things have to click yet, right? And it's, it's kind of like sort of what we felt in the early 2000s with these devices. Yeah, I mean, same thing with like Google Glass and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, right. You, like, you kind of you got it, but how practical is that going to be? Right. That's always the issue. So when you were creating things like those patents, did you know? I mean, like as you're working, you know, for these companies like you know Cisco and 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 others, and you're creating these things, did you feel like you're creating something that's going to be like you know foundational for the future, or are you just kind of head down working? Well, you know, it's interesting. Actually, I would say yes, you know, because I, I, I 
I remember a couple times. And and back at that time, we really did feel like, hey, this, you know, because the internet, if you think of mid-90s, people were already, hey, you know, spending a lot of their time playing around on Yahoo, looking at different sites. So you can kind of, you could see that the usage was there, right? And the addictiveness. And then there was a lot of things with devices and you could see it was going to come together. The trends were there, right? You knew Moore's Law was going to make the processor cheaper or faster. You knew screens were coming, right? You just needed to get production going. But, okay, do you wait or do you, you're kind of three, four years later, maybe you get lucky and, and you move on, you know? So do you definitely see it? You may not be the one that's the successful one, but it's the next person, the next company down the road. So you feel like you're in the right in the middle of it because the timing, you know, it's not 10 years out, it's three years out. And the second patent I had was around me and um, someone else at uh, SAP. You know, it was early on enterprise cloud computing. And if you think of SAP, you know, it's traditionally a, a workload that runs on bare metal servers, the best, you know, not virtualized, mm-hmm. not in a container. This is something doesn't run in AWS. You know, think mm-hmm. about this is uh, mid 2000s, right? And then again, you know, you see public cloud, people were starting to use AWS, but you had to figure out ways, how do I create that bare metal experience and manage compute in a way that's a little more dynamic? And so that patent around there, you're working on it, you knew it was going to enable what ended up being something called the HANA Enterprise Cloud, which was is very, very, very successful at SAP. Mm-hmm. You know, we knew it was it was something there and the timing's right. So you can kind of feel it, you know, I think more and more now you work on patents and there's not this... Hey, I'm doing this great research patent, maybe 25 years down the road. It's, it's, you know, within three years. Yeah. The flash. And, that, and that's great. So you can, you, you don't need to be that much of a visionary, right? You, you already have inklings and you're trying to piece together these different technologies and ideas. And it could be a business model that holds you back, or it could be, you know, a lack of vision from leaders in your company or a different strategic direction that holds it back. You, you hear that in, um, Ben Horitz in Hard Thing About Hard Things, where he talks about like Opsware and like cloud and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. that like so many people were working on cloud, but this just wasn't, technology just wasn't there yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then flash forward and it, it kind of all figured itself out. But yeah, right right idea, wrong time is yeah. uh, you either need to, uh, you know, st- stick through it in the long haul or, uh, or start working on something else. You know, wh- I, I want to get into your role as CTO of GE Transportation. Can you share like, what were your responsibilities like? What was the kind of breadth of the problem that you were solving and working on? You know, GE Transportation is, you know, a massive business unit with a ton of employees. Can you can you share some of that? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest challenge for, so GE Transportation generally sells products and services for the rail industry and the freight rail industry. Right. And this is an industry that's generally slower moving, right? Has a great market share for the goods that they move. If, it, if it's if it's heavy and it needs to move a long distance, you know, rail without a doubt is the most economical way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But it's a it's a plus or minus kind of days exercise. Hey, you know, I'm going to deliver this to you. It'll be there plus or minus days. Yeah. Whereas you know something like trucking is plus or minus hours, right? Yeah. Or if you're you know. Yeah, getting an Amazon delivery year plus or minus, you know, parts of an hour. Yeah. And so this industry really is a, a place where you, you hear the term digital transformation, but it's across the board, whether it's a manufacturing process, whether it's a logistics process, internal IT, 
you know, how can I leverage digital technology better? So the challenge is really kind of we're in a, in a couple of places in our in our digital business there. First was you think about the sort of the industrial IoT, you know, problem solution set is is really around, boy, how can I do maintenance in a better way, right? Am I just going to every six months replace the, you know, place the wheels on a locomotive yeah. or, you know what, hey, this one didn't get as much wear and tear. It went through different conditions. You don't need to replace that. So to, you save a lot of time and parts and, and money. So that that whole analytics process around how do I really, you know, what's the right way to outfit assets with sensors and to get data off of these assets and then be able to do analytics. That's one of the big challenges of that whole industry. And can I do so leveraging technologies that are at the right price point? The second big area is really around cloud. And if you think of the uh, rail industry as being traditional IT houses that have, you know, uh, enterprise, they're, they're all trying to, hey, how, do, how can I move more things to Google Cloud? How can I move more things to AWS? Traditional workloads, ERPs and, and that such. So they're starting that, but they're in general, we're not, they're not just on the beginning part of their public cloud journey. So in many ways, part of our challenge as GE Transportation was to also deliver software in a way that was a lot more cloud native. Yeah. So, you know, it started with microservices. How do I build software in a, in a little more componentized way? Part of this is timing, right? In my tenure at GE Transportation, we were actually very lucky in a sense that the timing was right to really start to get in uh, containerization. Mm -hmm. So, and it's just a couple of things, right? So, hey, Docker containers, it really starts to become the the de facto standard. Kubernetes just started, you know, was coming and going, hey, I think I see it. People are getting behind it. Let's build software in that way. So we were able to do that transformation over the past couple of years of how do we build our software and then how do we, how do we deploy it for our customers in this more cloud native way and not just be on VMs or on VMs on the public cloud. So I think that's another area, this whole public cloud transportation uh, transformation, which was a big emphasis within. Um, Tr transformation with it for transportation. Yeah, in general, <laughs> right? Because I think as a big vendor like GE Transportation, you know, you really can influence your customers, right? You're working together very closely with them on new innovative ideas, whether it's analytics or cloud or software. How do they improve their delivery, you know, less dwell, so uh, less delays, improved uptime, these kind of traditional productivity metrics. This is something that, you know, both cloud, digital technologies can all help, right? And you're trying to do that in a way that's cost effective. Yeah, I mean, I would love to get into, you know, for our listeners, a lot of our listeners have kind of those legacy systems or those older industries or a company that's been around 100 years. Yeah or 50 years or whatever it is that kind of constantly are trying to, you know, keep up with, you know, the pace of innovation, but also in an industry where the innovation that is happening is around, like the core technologies remain the same. Like how much have railways changed yeah, over the last yeah. hundred years? And what are the things that you were, that you were looking at of ways to innovate for your customers? Well, so one of the things that I think the nice part about technology today and the sort of pace of technology is that I think it makes things a lot more accessible. You can try things a lot faster. I can do POCs a lot quicker. And this is true with customers. So 
when we work with customers, we found that there may be a slow, slower moving company, but they have groups, right? Their charter is to kind of come up with new ideas. And yeah. So I think they're under a lot of pressure because of that. You can use that momentum. Hey, let's POC this new, new technology. Let's POC this new solution. And I think there's a great appetite for that. So we didn't really find too much, I guess, roadblocks in that standpoint from adopting technology that you would see. I think the biggest, the bigger challenges were more more business oriented challenges. I think you think whether it's GE itself as a company or the companies we faced, the culture of using technology and I just for cost reduction, yeah, and saving money, especially from an IT perspective. You know, it's like, hey, I just need to reduce staff. These sort yeah. of traditional things, I think all these traditional industries have sort of, they've done a lot of that already, right? And yeah. and they're at that place where they've actually eked out every dollar. And now I'm going to use the public cloud to eke out a little more dollars, not buy as many servers myself, buy my own storage. But it, it's got sort of this diminishing returns. And then they're under a lot of quarterly earnings pressures. Totally. So I think that is thing that holds back these these traditional and how do I how do I put investments down for either vendors to you know buy new technologies or, or internal teams that are hey spend five million dollars here you know and that maybe it's you know it's million to five million dollar investments um it doesn't have to be you know hundred million dollar investments right but how do I how do I keep doing these investments for technologies that just isn't just about reducing cost incrementally yeah that incrementalism. Yeah. And what were, some, what were the, some of those type of investments? Like, what were some of the things that you were excited about that you were seeing that could potentially be those massive, you know, uh, or like maybe minimal investments that actually yeah, yeah. could so, have huge so, yield? Yeah, so I'll give you a perfect example of one. You know, GE Transportation, one of the, one of the software products we build is intermodal terminal, smart intermodal terminal system. And it's basically, if you think about it, the dilemma for some of the freight railroads is... You have trucks coming in one side, you have trains that need to be built on the other side, freight trains, and you have these big stacks. You, you almost see it like in a seaport, you know, yeah. these stacks of containers and big cranes and trucks going around trying. And a lot of times, a lot of it is, you know, how can I get the throughput through these terminals quick enough, right? Yeah. I need, the trucks need to be unloaded. I have to put them in these stacks. Let's hope that the next container I need is not at the bottom of the stack. Yeah, totally. Right? So- Traditionally, a lot of that's done as an OR operations research problem, right? So there's a couple of areas, just taking that example of a product where we, we sort of introduce technologies. So one is around visualization. So if you think about it, it's it's not unlike a video game, right? You can sort of see these terminals. Hey, if it was a video game level scale, you know, I could SimCity the whole thing and yeah. have fun with it, right? But so introducing sort of gaming engines and and gaming visualization technologies was something we worked with a small company, a startup does a lot of that specific work. And we literally had a team that was sort of by brute force doing the visualizations. Hey, let's put down the containers. Let's draw the, you know, and sure you could do it, but are we the experts in doing that? Or do we, and finding the right startup, right? Enlisting that technology, very easy to integrate in. It took only about a six month POC and that's now in the product today. And all of a sudden it opens up the whole world, just like you would see in a SimCity where, you know, not only can I look at different overlays, hey, I can look at all the containers. Hey, let me look at all the containers from XYZ company. Or, you know, let's just look at the trucks. Let's just look at this, right? And you can kind of take all these different layers off. You can run simulations. You can run replays, 
right? Because you have all this data and it's and it's rendered in a way at an, at an object level that allows you this. So minimal investment, but big impact in terms of how the software is built, how the software then is, you know, is it's obviously a lot more palatable when you when you demo the software or you show the software. Second thing is just on these type of optimization things is how do I introduce AI technologies? You know, and things around ETAs, you know, estimated time of arrival is a, is a very simple one, right? Schedule-based things. And in the rail business, a lot of schedules. How do I how do I plan this schedule? Yeah. And we actually, at, you know, at GE Transportation had all this, you know, good data, right? Of all the, you know, half the locomotives in the world and all the trains being built by all the railroads and the, and the trains being sent out. I, I know the, when it left, when it finally got there, but I need to bring that together. And can I derive better estimated times of arrival to solve that plus or minus days problem? You know, so I could introduce things around, hey, can I use what I see in ETA problems being solved for some of the automated vehicles or trucks or these yeah. different industries. And it just apply these, some of these concepts and introduce it on a, you know, we have software that it's a, it has a column that says ETA and it's the scheduled ETA. How hard is it to put another column that just, and it's a beta little column that has the new AI driven ETA. And it can, maybe it's not as good in the beginning, but over time it gets better and people start using that column instead of, you know, that's an easy way. It, it took minimal investment, but it, it takes you right to the forefront of introducing some really kind of cool technologies into a space that, you know, you may not recognize it as AI. Yeah, we, um, one of the things that we were talking to, to UPS, there's this great case study of like UPS drivers that basically turning left is a huge thing that wastes time, right? <laughs> yeah, because if yeah. you turn left, then you have to wait at a stoplight and then you cross traffic. It's also more dangerous, all that sort of stuff. And then so it's like, it's more advantageous to turn right three times to get yeah. to a place. I've been, I've been having this argument with my, uh, my spouse for years. <laughs> there you I'm, go. Uh, hating left turns. <laughs> no, yeah, there, there you go. Um, yeah, you got your, you got your stuff. But, but I think that it's an interesting look on like how the strategic, you know, shows the data that blends down to down to tactical. And you can only do that when you have, you know, a common operating picture of all of your devices, right? Like yeah. that's the thing about, you know, IOT is it's not just where the parts are on the board, but it's synthesizing the data for that. Well, yeah, one of the things you were, you were asking about challenges we see, and the other one is on in this, and it's again, it's sort of a business issue with um, the transportation industry is any freight train, you think about it, there's a locomotive and there's cars and these rail cars, a lot of the delays related to the train is actually related to rail cars, you know, issues and maintenance with rail cars. But these, these rail cars are kind of a, they're not all owned by the the railroad. They're kind of leased by this company. Oh yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And so outfitting these type of things with the right technologies, right? Who's going to build that business case going across this whole con consortium of different rail car yeah. leasing companies? Right. So yeah, it's not full stack, right? Yeah, you You're don't not really have yeah. the whole. And I think these chain. industries that are sort of fragmented like that, they're not powered, right? They have very low power because it's not always connected to a battery or a mm -hmm. power source. So you start to get into this, oh, I need a low power sensor, or I need to, you know, some kind of other type of way. And and that very quickly gets expensive. And so a lot of these industrial IoT things, it comes down to when it's in a plant and a facility, stationary piece of equipment, okay great wireless land, I can hook it up and I can make an ROI pretty quickly. When it's moving, I don't own that piece of equipment. It's pretty old. 
I need to put a sensor on there at last 20 years, it starts to get the sensors more expensive than the whole operation. itself. Yeah. That's where the business model breaks down. And that's going to be one of the things that really has to get solved before I think you see this, you know, industrial IOT for moving transportation type things really kind of click in place. That's a fascinating concept that the sensors are so expensive at this point that it might be more expensive than, you know, than the cars that are, that they're sitting on. Um, well, you know, yeah, yeah, I, I, I probably, it's not as expensive, but you know, like a lot of these rail cars are old, right? They're, they're fully depreciated, but so, yeah, in, in concept it is, you know? Yeah, but yeah, exactly. And that, that's kind of what I mean is like at any, at any given time it could be, but it also is the fact that you don't own it. So then at what point is that data going to be, you know, is it just going to be sitting somewhere for a long time? We're like, why is this sitting there? It's like, oh, this thing got retired and I didn't know, yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. for example. Who are you working with from these companies? Are you working with their CTO or CIO? Or are you working? Um, and how much time did you spend like in-house at, at GE Transportation versus when you were, you know, like out talking to customers and things yeah. like that? I think across the board for these industries, we're, we're pretty much out talking with customers. And it's at all levels. It's not even at the executive levels. It's usually more deal related stuff. But all the technical managers, the technical product managers are out working with customers how to define the uh, requirements, typical product management stuff. Yeah. And it's it's pretty everybody working together, whether it's on new concepts and, we you know, innovation type concepts or implementation of projects and large uh, product implementations. Um, I think for most of these industries, it's hand in hand. And you find that, so you're working with CIO and their direct staff, their challenge, right? They have a, an, a system integrator that's usually their right-hand person. GE Transportation uses system integrators to help with development, to yeah. help with other areas. So finding those right partners in a sort of a triangle, who, who can help bring it together too, is also an important one to help in fact affect these sort of bigger transformations and change. But that gets challenging. I think you could have pretty good alignment between the CIO, CTOs of the two organizations. Now you just got to get the teams that can implement these solutions on time. Are they really aligned? And how many third parties are involved there? So that's that's always, I find, to be part of the challenge is uh, getting the alignment of the, the staffs, more so than the the executives. Yeah, <laughs> that makes think, sense. Yeah, yeah. And I think, because I think, like I said, for most of these industries, because it's a, you know, there are seven ma large major railroads in the United States for freight. There's a lot of short line railroads, but there's associations that bring those together, you know, cu uh, customer groups and boards, advisory boards. So very quickly, you can get to sort of consensus about here are the problems we want to solve as an industry, et cetera. So I think uh, implementing is, is kind of the challenge in a timely fashion. On your team, how did you have to deal with legacy systems and replacing them with new technologies internally? You know, a lot of technology leaders struggle with that prioritization of, you know, handling technical debt and replacing those legacy systems and implementing new technologies. Like, how did you look at making those type of types of decisions? Yeah, um, you know, it's, it's some of it's the typical, I mean, I can think about it just even let me look at it more from internally. If we looked at our product portfolio, which is you know a mix of legacy products in the middle and new products, yeah. In general, you know, you kind of use the typical, hey, which products are the high growth ones in terms of revenue or or growth, 
um, which ones are the cash cows, which ones are, you know, strategic. And the obviously the new products that we could start Greenfield, we were going cloud native without a doubt. Yeah. Even ahead of the time where folks would go, hey, this still needs to fill on premise. We had pretty good faith that they'll they'll meet us at, at the cloud two years from now. Because the trends are there too, they're too obvious, right? So, and I saw this at SAP too, you know, it's like, oh yeah, no, we're on premise. And then six months down the road, they're, they're pushing you to go on cloud. And you're like, oh, geez, I should have just done the cloud yeah, version yeah, yeah. initially, right? So I think new products, not, not a problem. And then on the legacy front, a lot of that is more around, is there some stuff that you could migrate as is into sort of a, a public cloud hosting style, as opposed to running those servers in-house? And they could be, you know, strong legacy market share products. We kind of compartmentalize those, right? And I think then in the middle, a lot of it, especially we found that, you know, some of the software that's fairly monolithic legacy software, I think you can cut away chunks of it. You know, this is this sort of, like I said, sort of this containerization microservices, that that combination philosophies and, and technologies, you can actually start to chip away, hey, let's run this service, let's run it in a container, run it on the side, right? Not everything needs to be in this monolith and sort of re-architect some of these big software. And we were able to, you know, we're able to do that over over multiple customers. And and these are big, big pieces of software. Yeah. But how do I deconstruct it so it's it's a lot more scalable? Maybe the visualization, maybe the analytics part of it is done in the cloud. So you can you can cut away chunks and um, it doesn't necessarily need to be done by this huge, uh, let's hire a big SI to do it either. Yeah. You know, you just get a few smart people in the room, look at, okay, hey, let's take this approach. Because again, the technologies and things you need to know are out there. There's enough blogs, there's enough information out there with recipes on how to go about it. You don't necessarily need six months of a consulting group in there to tell you what you kind of feel already. Yeah. And there's some, you know, general recipes. So I think it, what's nice is you can go on, do it, do it with your internal staff, not a huge, doesn't have to be this huge all encompassing decision and, and go about it incrementally. And before you know it, you're, you know, you're, you're there and you're learning and, and technology, it's not as costly as, as some of the old big migrations you need to do. Final piece on transportation. You know, we have high-speed rail that's coming, hopefully, more quickly, <laughs> more quickly to the U.S. It's already happening in places like U.K. and China. You know, what are you excited about for the future of transportation, you know, from either a technical or non-technical standpoint yeah. in the kind of near and distant future? So I, I think the most exciting thing and that's going to affect all of the different areas of transportation, especially let's just talk about freight and moving, you know. Yeah not the automated vehicles for a consumer side. You know, a lot of us in the rail space, we talk about trucking. And, you know, trucking's always these, this, this one area where, okay, yeah, between zero and 500 miles, that's the no-brainer way to move stuff. But if it's over 500 or it gets over 500 miles, rail is the way to go given costs. But with the automated technologies that you see in the consumer space being leveraged by trucks, right? you start to see this, oh, hey, maybe I can make it such that it's more economical to do that thousand miles on trucks. And, you know, is that a 
20 year out thing. No, maybe it could be 10 years out. Maybe it's just about tuning trucks, you know, having a couple of trucks that are more automated following a driver truck. You know, when I used to work at SAP, you'd take that A5, which is the Autobahn from Frankfurt airport to Waldorf. Yeah. And it's a two, you know, two to three lane thing. Usually one lane has got construction going on. So it ends up being this two lane nightmare. One lane being all trucks, you know, that you can barely get in and then the rest cars. And you start to look at it. It's like, oh my God, it just looks like this big truck truck lane. So it's not that hard to visualize that, hey, if some pieces of automation could go and make that that truck lane run a lot smoother, save fuel, less drivers, right? That solve that trucker driver challenge. So an introduction of this technology is gonna is gonna make that trucking space a lot more competitive. And that's gonna put a lot of pressure on rail industry. Okay, yeah. I need to compete, right? It's gonna push the the Amazons of the world as they try to get control of the whole the whole end to end. Yeah. And hey, drones. You know, yeah. Too. Yeah. Right. So you're going to, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to, I can do, I'm going to have these automated trucks. Yeah. I can throw drones flying off of it. I can do all these other things, but the, the base infrastructure starts to get a lot more economical. Then I think you'll see this sort of consolidation in rail space. You know, one of the interesting thing about the rail space is they, they own rights of way. Right. Yeah. And there, there are people that go, Hey, you know what? The train tracks they own, is probably more valuable than the trains that are running on it, right? Yeah. So what if I paved the whole thing and just put automated trucks going down? Yeah. I could probably make a lot more money. So that kind of the 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 things automated technology coming to trucking, how that's just going to force everybody to kind of get their game going. That's what's going to be exciting, and I think it's going to happen before what you're going to see in the automated vehicles for cars, because I think there's the the insurance business case is greater. You know, it's it's a no brainer. The states and and governments really want to find ways to kind of clear up their roads. Yeah, there's just the the economics make sense. So I think there'll be a lot of um, advancement very quickly. You know, the trucks only you know last three to four years, not thirty years like a train. So I can turn over technology very quickly. Yeah, right, and that's going to force it to kind of come quicker. You know, at, at first, you know, the rail industry may see a little bit of, uh-oh, right? They may not see it coming, but I think it'll force everybody to kind of, and, and you'll you'll be in a better place. But it's a great point about, I mean, owning that rail space. And it's like with driverless and all the, that sort of stuff, like if you own, if you own the right of way. Yeah. Um, and it's like, that's. Yeah. And you start to see it with like, how do I think about distribution centers? I always think about, uh, when I think about automated vehicles, I always think about, okay, the, you know, the malls, you know, what, you know, all these, all these uh, big Hillsdale Mall, Stanford yeah. Shopping Center. Yeah. You know, what's the right model? But man, they're sitting on a bunch of land. You know, it's always been sort of a real estate game. How do I leverage this real estate for this new world? And it's the same for these transportation companies, right? I have terminals, I have ports, I have rights of way. How do I leverage that for this sort of new economy that's coming? And they may be sitting on a gold mine. They just yeah. don't know it yet, you know? So that's going to be exciting, I think. That is really exciting. And I am all for... Uh... I'm all for taking uh, a large percentage of those malls and turning them into parks <laughs> and then figuring out a way that uh, they could monetize it better. Because yeah. uh, if I'm like, man, all these like concrete jungles, like. Uh, well, and, and it's it's sad, too, you know, to a certain degree, because you know that, listen, you can see it. It's, it's dying out. There's nobody there during the week. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, so, OK, I get it. And how many can you make into entertainment centers? How many, you know, that's only going to be a certain amount. I don't know if they'll all be parks. I don't know. They may be, you know, 
with Uber going public today, there might be Uber uh, yeah. docking stations. Well, I, you know, I made a joke a long time ago that I was like, you know, Salesforce, who sponsors this podcast and is amazing. Um, I was like, they should just buy every BART station. Like they should just like purchase the naming rights to every BART station yeah. and they should have every BART station be whatever. And then just take over all of those stations. And then with that extra money that the city, that each of those cities could get, I was like, we could, we could rehaul BART like overnight with yeah, all that money. Yeah. And then they built the Salesforce transit center, yeah. um, <laughs> which is, you know, has had some hiccups and stuff, but but it's like that sort of idea is like when you start to reimagine like where the space is going, yeah. when you start to imagine like how transportation can change those transit areas and 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 ways that you were talking about, you can get really creative and exciting and, and value add in, yeah. in a huge well, way. You're from the Bay Area, right? Yeah. And, you know, and I think you're from Oakland, right? Yeah. So, you know, I always think about the Oakland Coliseum and all the oh, issues yeah. they have there, right? And it's who owns these different areas of land, you know, how many how many people have rights to these different areas can you negotiate through that i think there are solutions out there from a technology and process perspective but some of this old school how do we how do we get the parties aligned boy that that seems to be holding up a lot of these great infrastructure projects out there well yeah and i think that i think we get kind of like in this mindset of because we did certain things like in the past that it can't kind of be undone we did this podcast future cities and one of the things that was really interesting about, you know, like cutting down on the redwoods in the Bay Area and kind of building San Francisco and the surrounding Bay Area with that wood. It's like, it doesn't mean that there's areas that you can't replant. Like there's, like, there's, <laughs> and, and I think just, I think the, the doing the mental exercise of like reimagining space is so important, you know, and all this conversation about talking about transportation is like, yeah, what if all of that downtown or all of the, you know, the docks, the, the adats that people call it, yeah, yeah. um, you know, like all of that stuff over time will change how all those port areas, all that stuff, it will change at some point in time, yeah, it's yeah. going to change. Yeah. Um, and that's just, I think it's an exciting time to, to look at that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I think, and it, and it has to, I think now in the Bay area, I think we're at one of those, you know, you can sort of see it with the traffic and the housing and, you know, you're at this sort of point again, where it's just saturated. Right. And so there's usually a release, yeah. <laughs> right? And so somehow it's gonna, I think it's going to be through these new ideas and to try to break out some of this uh, gridlock. Yeah. And for our listeners that are in other places that are like, yeah, I get at the Bay Area. So, but it's, it's every city, you know, it's Correct. every, I mean, what is it like 80% of the world's population, you know, lives, lives near yeah, water. Yeah. Everybody's got like these that. traffic, Atlanta, horrible. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I, I think uh, same type of problems. And I, I think it's interesting that you're, and it's sort of this cycle, right? You can, whether it's replanting trees or reimagining urban areas, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean just because you change it once doesn't mean it can't be something else again, right? Yeah. It can be, it can change every 20 years. It doesn't have to be there for 50 years, you know, so. All right, let's get into lightning round. Yeah. These questions are fast and easy, just like the lightning platform by Salesforce. Fast and easy questions. Are you ready? Now, do you want one word answers or do you want I, it's, it's your call dealer's choice here. all right well i guess it's that wouldn't be dealer's choice but i guess i'm the dealer in this scenario but your call number one what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun <laughs> well i mean there's a couple apps so well it's kind of boring it's a weight watchers app it just got hey. revamped what i love about it is nowadays you scan any food 
from any store, from any vendor. And oh, it's yeah. got the number of points on there. <laughs> it's improved like crazy. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Do you have a favorite recent book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? So I am reading the book of Leon from uh, Leon from Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so one of my favorite shows and uh, uh, comics. But uh, what's interesting about it is uh, he's coming from the perspective of Leon, not uh, J.B. Smoove. Favorite vacation spot? I like the Greek islands. What do you do for fun? So a lot of college football. So whether it's watching and traveling to that, it's usually sports related and uh, following recruiting for it, the whole nine yards. Favorite use of AI or chatbots that you've seen uh, recently? Oh, it's not there yet. I love the way Google Translate has moved to being able to take, point your camera at, at text and it just sort of morphs it on the fly. Over the last year, that's been incredible. What is your best advice for a first-time CTO? Doesn't always necessarily need to be a huge investment or a huge time project. You know, there are, there are plenty of things you can do with minimal budget and two people. I started GE Transportation as one a single-person CTO group. And, you know, we built it up to a, a certain size, but it, we did great things from the beginning yeah, with just one person. Don't don't get uh, frustrated if you don't have all the budget and all the people in the world. What question did I not ask you today that you wish you had been asked? Oh, I thought we were going to have some, uh, this, we talked about Uber, discussions on Uber, Lyft, and my views on, <laughs> are these going to be successful companies going forward? Sure, we could do that. <laughs> I I have problems with it because it's too easy to... Right. If Uber disappeared today, I would just switch to Lyft. Yeah. yeah. Lyft disappeared, I would switch to Uber. The commoditization. So, yeah. So there's really transport. no loyalty. And I think it's the same way with Facebook, right? If Facebook died today, I would probably find something else or move. That's the problem I see with these companies. You know, what what real stickiness do you not only people my generation, but the younger generation who's even, you know, has less uh, attention to certain things. I think that's a real danger. You know, how do we value these companies that really don't have products that are really that sticky? Well, I think that they created a massive need for a thing. And now the next step is how do they continue to evolve how they serve that thing? Because being front of mind for them is a huge marketing problem. Front front of mind for those two companies is how you will win the day. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think that, I think, uh, I mean, I think Lyft has, has done more for me as a business person than just about any company has because I get places way Correct. faster. I think way less about transportation yeah. and uh, it's really, really impactful. Yeah, so what's interesting, right? And, and um, so much for the lightning round, but What's interesting about it is it's not unlike uh, I'm a big satellite radio listener. You know, yeah. there was Sirius, there was XM. Eventually they had to, con you know, consolidate. So, but you have Lyft with one culture, Uber with a uh, changing culture. You know, which ones are these places going to have to consolidate because it ends up being sort of a traditional, you know, infrastructure, economies of scale kind of thing. But unfortunately, the brands and the company cultures may not be as uh, obvious.
to yeah. the inner folks and and do people really choose people choose lift because it has a certain they do they do have a certain point of view and a culture and there's there's loyalty there well but and i think how long can they maintain that you know i think to your point whether it's facebook or, or uber or whatever it is you know these hashtag delete blank things that people do i think a lot of times those might be overblown in the press and i think that they're covered more than they're actually being done but but with app-based technology, like you can quite literally delete it from your phone and all the work that the company spent to get you to use their technology is now gone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're not sticky anymore, yeah. right? You're gone. Yeah. And so I think that, that that mindset of we've spent so much time figuring out how to have people have easy onboarding processes to get started right away, get started in minutes. The downside of that too is you can cancel in minutes yeah. um, and then you're gone. So yeah. uh, it's an interesting, it's going to be really interesting. I mean, you see that with with uh, SaaS technologies, you see it correct with SMB technologies. And if you can't quit their service fast, they are going to let everyone know about it. Yeah. And that word of mouth is brutal. Yeah. Um, but, it, but you know, there's uh, sort of mixed incentives, right? And you sort of luck into it uh, because it's sort of hard for people to get off my service. They kind of, satisfaction goes down, but there's enough time I can try to keep that customer. Yeah. Or I can work a deal. So in the enterprise or SMB space, there's some time you can get, you know, consumer space, they're gone. You know? Yeah, they're yeah. gone. You know, and so it's, it's, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. Well, so this has been awesome. Thanks so much for stopping by. We really appreciate it. Uh, any Anything else to, uh, any shout outs to give? What's your favorite team? Shout out for your favorite team. Oh, Stanford Cardinal. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm a lifelong Football, Cal- basketball. I'm a uh, lifelong Cal fan. So oh, just, sorry about that. Yeah, we'll have to delete this interview. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but awesome. Thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks a lot. Thank you again to our friends at Salesforce. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. Salesforce just introduced the Lightning Platform Mobile, the low-code mobile app development platform that empowers anyone to easily build, publish, and manage AI-powered mobile apps for employees and for customers. Find out more at salesforce.com slash build mobile apps.